Well, we are continuing our series on the family today, and the message today is not uh, connected necessarily with Father's Day. It does include some elements of that, but uh, we are going to be looking at a section in Genesis 27 this morning, but that's not where our scripture reading is. We want to read from uh, some of the Proverbs, so let me ask you to turn to Proverbs And we're beginning chapter 15 and verse 17. Proverbs 15, 17. So after you've found Proverbs, why don't you go ahead and stand. We're going to read about four Proverbs this morning. Proverbs 15, 17. Better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Now drop down to chapter 17, verse 1. 17, 1. Better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. And then chapter 21, two verses in chapter 21, verse 9. It is better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. And by the way, that can apply both ways. You could say contentious man there as well. Drop down to verse 19. It is better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman or man. The Lord does not design for us to have contention in our families, and that's what we'll be focusing on this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you today just for your grace. We thank you that uh, your grace not only applies to our salvation, but it applies to our everyday lives, and especially it applies in the context of the family. And Lord, we are a needy people. We need your grace constantly. And Lord, we thank you for it. Lord, we uh, thank you for this opportunity today to Just honor our fathers and to give thanks for them. And, uh, Lord, we thank you for godly fathers who desire to please you and lead their families in the the things of the Lord. And, Lord, we pray that you would just bless dads today and uh, help them to uh, be courageous and be men of integrity and, and to walk with you and lead their families to do the same. And, Lord, we... uh, we pray that you would uh, bless this week as we have Vacation Bible School. We thank you for all these children that we have an opportunity to influence for you. So, Lord, we pray that it would just be an awesome week. And, uh, Lord, we thank you today for your word. We thank you that you give us instruction. You tell us how we need to live life. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be wise as we seek to apply your principles to our daily living in the family. So, Lord, we pray this morning you would bless in Jesus' name. Amen. Fussin', feudin', and a fightin' was a hit song in the late 1940s. Anybody remember it? Not too many. But it isn't funny anymore because... There are far too many families today that are doing exactly that. The Family Feud is not just a popular TV show. 
It is something that goes on constantly in many homes. In thousands of homes today, family feud is no joking matter. Proverbs 17.1 says, Better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. Have you ever tried to eat stale crackers without anything to drink? Have you ever eaten shredded wheat without milk? One pastor wrote, If there's anything worse than eating dry cereal, it is eating dry cereal alone. He said, somehow eating alone never sets well with me. The most wonderful times our family has is around the table. He says, the greatest fellowship you can have with friends is over a plate of food. It's not fun to eat by yourself. He talks about the early years in his ministry when he was still single. And he went to a church and they gave him the parsonage to live in. It was a big two-story house. And he wrote, I rattled around in that big old place not being married. Somehow, I never could enjoy staying there. I never sat in the living room. It was too lonely. One of the most difficult times was mealtime. I could fix hamburger a hundred different ways, but that's about all I could cook, he said. When I sat down to eat, if I hadn't thrown out what I tried to cook, I spent very little time over my food. It's not fun eating alone. And then he said this, It's not pleasant eating dry bread alone, but it's a whole lot better than a house filled with strife. That's what Solomon said, and he was the wisest man to ever live. Well, in Genesis chapter 27, we see a family feud described. This family feud occurred in the home of the patriarch Isaac. It involved an all-too-typical sibling rivalry. But I believe that in this story, we can learn some important truths about dealing with conflicts in families. You see, every member of this family had some responsibility for bringing about this family feud. And I'm sure you know this story, but to get the background, we need to go back a couple of chapters. In chapter 25, we read about the death of Abraham. And by the way, I can't resist pointing out Two noteworthy things the Bible has to say about the death of Abraham. Look with me for a moment in Genesis 25 and verse 8. Genesis 25 and verse 8. It says, And Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. Now, notice the two things the Bible has to say about him. It says, first of all, he died as an old man who was satisfied with life. He lived a long time in this world, 
and he was fulfilled. Now, that is saying something because there are a lot of people today who reach the end of their lives filled with regret. And they wish they could turn back the clock and go back and do everything differently. But Abraham, because he did the Lord's will, could come to the end of his life and he was satisfied. Secondly, notice that the Bible says he was gathered to his people. Now, what does that mean? Well, it certainly could not mean that he was buried among his relatives. Because his relatives were hundreds of miles away in Mesopotamia. Alexander McLaren, the commentator, says, Abraham's whole life was shaped by the commandment, Get thee out from thy father's house, and from thy kindred, and from thy country. He never dwelt with his kindred. All his days he was a pilgrim and a sojourner in a strange land. And though he was living in the midst of a civilization which possessed great cities and whose walls reached to heaven, the Bible says he pitched his tent beneath the terebinth tree at Mamre and would have nothing to do with the order of things around him, but he remained an exotic a waif, an outcast in the midst of Canaan all his life. Why? Because he looked for a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. And now the Bible says he's gathered to his people. That's a reference to eternal life, which Abraham attained by faith, looking forward to the cross in the same way that we look back at the cross. But as we continue in chapter 25, we see the birth of Isaac's twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Here they are twins, and yet no two boys were ever so different as these two. Not only did they struggle with each other in the womb, but they were against each other their entire lives. They have two totally different viewpoints, different philosophies, and different approaches to life. Their physical makeup was different. Their manner of life was different. Everything about them was different. In fact, if you look at Genesis 25:22, it says, But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Things are so bad with these twin boys struggling in her womb that Rebekah goes to God to ask him about it. And notice the Lord's answer in verse 23. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples shall be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and then notice, and the older shall serve the younger. Now this is, in a sense, uh, a situation that is unique and should not be 
considered totally uh, normative for us today because this was the divine seed that led up to Messiah coming into the world. And all of the stories of the lives of the patriarchs point to the sovereign will of God. And over and over again in the text, we read where God was superintending all of these things, even those things that appear to be evil. And yet, at the same time, I believe we can see in these markings of this family feud some lessons that we can learn from today. Even though it all kind of turned out well in the end, we see there was a great price to be paid for this conflict. And I believe all of it could have been avoided. But this morning, for just a few minutes, what I would like to do is I want to look at each individual character in this story and see how they all contributed to this family feud. And the first thing we see here is a father's inconsistent decisions. A father's inconsistent decisions. Part of the problem in this home is the fact that Isaac was guilty of inconsistency in his decision-making and leadership. Now, I understand that Isaac was a patriarch and that he was in the divine lineage that God would use to bring Jesus into the world. And there is no doubt that we see some good characteristics in him, such as his willingness to lay down his life on the altar on Mount Moriah. But later in his life, Isaac made some decisions that were inconsistent with God's will. You see, chapter 25 tells us that God had made it clear that the older would serve the younger. And yet Isaac still tried to give the blessing to Esau, his older son, who happened to be his favorite. And here we see a man who was disregarding what God had revealed to be his will. And all of it seemed to have to do with his fleshly desires. You know, it's interesting to note why Esau was Isaac's favorite. Besides the fact that Esau was what we would call the all-American boy in comparison to Jacob, and that Esau was rugged, strong, an outdoorsman, while Jacob was a soft, stay-at-home mama's boy, the real reason why he was Isaac's favorite is given for us in Genesis chapter 25, verse 28. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. Isaac loved to eat what Esau brought home from the hunt. Now, folks, here was a man who was claiming to be and should have been the spiritual leader of his home. A man who should have been one who was obedient to God's clearly revealed will. Yet, he based his decisions on what he could see, smell, touch, and taste, the flesh, the senses. 
And in the same way, there are many fathers today who contribute to the conflict in their families by failing to live according to God's revealed will. It is the tragedy in many homes today. Where are the fathers who are truly spiritual leaders in their homes and are saying, we're going to live according to the will of the Lord? We're not going to make decisions on the whims of the flesh. And some family feuds are caused, at least partially, by fathers who are not being godly leaders in the home and are making their decisions on the wrong basis. But let's move to the second one. We also see here a mother's insecure demands. Now, Jacob usually gets the blame for being a deceiver, but it all really began with his mother. Here is a woman who had been given a promise by God, but she believed she needed to help God out to bring it to pass. And rather than just waiting and trusting in God to fulfill his promise, she felt that she needed to manipulate and maneuver the situation. That she needed to plot and plan and lie and deceive in order for her favorite son to get the blessing. Not only does she run ahead of God, she pushes Jacob all along the way. And what an opportunity she had to teach her son to trust God. What an opportunity she had to teach her son just how faithful God is. But instead, she taught him to connive and scheme and manipulate in order to get his way. She taught him to live up to his name, which meant deceiver. And notice how she plotted and schemed. She knew exactly how to season the goat so it would taste like wild game. She knew how to put the goat's hair on Jacob so he would feel hairy like his brother. She knew how to dress him in Esau's clothes so he would smell like his brother. Apparently, the deodorant that Esau used was not very effective. Which reminds me of the story I heard about two guys who were working in a very tight place. One of them finally said, Wow, I think the deodorant of one of us has quit working. The other guy said, Well, it must be yours because I don't use any. (laughs) But... Rebecca knew exactly what to do to make this stay-at-home boy smell like he had spent the whole day outside in the wild. And it's interesting to note that even when this blessing episode is over, and Esau then wants to kill his brother Jacob, Rebecca is still manipulating Isaac to get her way. Rather than being honest with him and telling him what happened, and now Esau wants to kill Jacob, she lies to him and tells him that she wants Jacob to have a wife from the daughters of her brother Laban. I mean, look with me at chapter 27 
and verse 46. 27, 46. And Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth, like these, from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? I mean, you know, it's almost like, uh, what, what use is there to go on living if he marries one of these women? Chapter 28. So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise and go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and from there take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. It worked. And it appears at first that Rebekah has won, right? Jacob is going to be able to flee from his brother, but we also see she paid dearly for this. She will never see her son again. Esau, of course, is going to marry foreign wives, and this brought her great heartache. And it is very possible that Rebekah died a miserable old woman because of her deceit. But we need to move on now, thirdly, to a son's intentional deception. I don't know about you, but I really get tired of hearing young people blame their parents when they get in trouble. It's time people started accepting the responsibility for their own sin. And it might have been easy for Jacob to blame his mother for all of this, but he was the one who intentionally deceived his father and brought about the wrath of his brother. The name Jacob literally actually means, may God be your rear guard, but it also can mean deceiver, and this meaning comes closer to describing him. In his heart, Jacob had a desire to worship God and to be pleasing to Him, but it took a long time for the Lord to rub off all the debris that was on the top and to remove all the sinful attitudes and behavior and to bring him to the place where he could really use him for his purposes. And as we see here in Genesis, he was God's man all along, but we don't see that until the very end of the story. At the beginning, what we see is conniving and scheming and deception. We first see this treachery in chapter 25, where he tricks his brother into giving him his birthright. And I know you know the story. Esau, as usual, is out hunting and he comes in where Jacob is in the tent, and Jacob has been there cooking, and he has this nice stew uh, prepared, and his brother comes in, he's all famished, and he he's, you know, thinks he's going to die of hunger, and so he says to his brother, give me some of that red stew. Give me some of that lentil soup. And of course, Jacob says, I'll be happy to do that if you'll give me your birthright. And the Bible says that Esau despised his birthright and he sold it to his brother for a bowl of soup. 
Now, the method that Jacob used in obtaining the birthright cannot be supported on any grounds whatsoever. And although Esau, the Bible says, despised his birthright, and he did not really show a lot of discipline, he, of course, was at fault as well. God did not condone this episode any more than he condoned the conduct of Abraham and Sarah in the matter of Hagar and Ishmael. But now one good thing can be said of Jacob is this, that he at least knew what was important. He valued the birthright while Esau despised it. And we see in the story that Esau did not seem to be interested at all in pleasing God. When he found out that marrying a foreign wife was not pleasing to his parents, he went right out and married two of them. And we see that God was determined to keep the messianic lineage through Jacob. But the problem was that Rebekah could not trust God to bring that to pass, and neither could Jacob. So what's the lesson here for us? The lesson is that even spiritual ambition can be wrong if we employ the ways of the flesh to obtain it. Not only is the end result important, but the method for accomplishing it is also very important. And we need to make sure that we are utilizing godly, biblical methods in seeking to do God's will. It seems that Jacob had fallen into the old adage that God helps those who help themselves. By the way, many people think that's in the Bible. It's not. Some people uh, think that this is a good principle to live by, but in fact it is very unbiblical in its teaching. But Jacob fell into thinking that way, which is something, by the way, Israel repeated a number of times as well. But he thought, as long as I can help myself accomplish this, I don't need to wait and trust God for it. Now, in chapter 27, we see where Jacob came in and lied to his father. And God had already promised that the older would serve the younger, but Jacob felt that he needed to, you know, lie and deceive and manipulate the situation to kind of seal the deal. And one thing we learn from this story is something that is always true of lying and deceiving. And that is, it always takes another lie to cover up the first one. First, he had to impersonate Esau. Then he had to say he was Esau. Then he had to claim that the reason he had gotten the game so quickly was because God had helped him. Can you believe he even brought God into this? And we shouldn't be too surprised about that because we often do the same thing as well. You know, it's amazing the things that God gets blamed for that really are simply the result of our own sin. J. Vernon McGee once wrote, I find out sometimes that Christian men 
think they can do things the mafia would be arrested for, but these men can very piously pray about it and say that it is the Lord's will. God directed me to do it. God told me to do it. Well, Jacob paid a dear price for his deceit. You know, he may have seemed to have gotten by with it at first, but God sent this man off to college. And old Uncle Laban was the president of the college, and it was, of course, the school of hard knocks. And you know the story. He went back to his mother's people, and lo and behold, he fell in love with a girl he met named Rachel. Her daddy was his uncle. And you talk about a trickster. Laban ended up out Jacobing Jacob. Jacob was deceived as he had as he had deceived others. And the Bible says this, be sure your sin will find you out. That is true in this story. He ended up on his wedding day with Rachel's older sister instead of Rachel. And he had to work seven more years for her. And Laban kept changing his wages and doing everything he could do to rip him off. And Jacob ended up paying for his deception by having to live as a fugitive in a foreign land for fear of his brother all those years. He never saw his mother again. What a high price he paid for his sin. Why? Because he hadn't learned to trust God. That was something God had to teach him. And the account of his wrestling with God, you know that account, was the point at which he finally got it. And God taught him that hard lesson. But up until that point, he was one who always had a plan. He always had a scheme. He always had some method of trying to accomplish things himself. I mean, even as his brother was approaching, he was still trying to appease him with gifts and dividing up his people so his brother couldn't kill them all, etc. He had a tough time learning the ways of God. He had a tough time learning to depend on God rather than on the flesh. And this is one reason why we still struggle in our relationship with God and in our relationships in the family. Rather than doing things God's way and submitting ourselves to Him and trusting Him to do what He desires to do in our lives, we often try to manipulate the situation. We try to fix things. And we come up with a plan that we think will make things better. But our ways inevitably make things worse, not better. And all these ways of lying and deceiving fanned the flames of family conflict. Now, there's one more character in the story. And we've already mentioned him briefly. But notice, fourthly, a brother's indifferent desires. As I already mentioned, verse 25 tells us that Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. 
the birthright was the covenant blessing. But Esau did not see this as something important. In chapter 27, when he discovered that he had been deceived by his brother, he wept over losing the blessing, but in reality, he had really forfeited it years earlier. And there are some character flaws that we find in Esau that made him unfit for the blessing of God. In the book of Hebrews, we see a very important piece of information about Esau. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Look with me at Hebrews 12.15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Now that's another sermon. But notice verse 16. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Now, it's interesting that the author of Hebrews refers to Esau as an immoral or godless person. The word for godless there is the Greek word babelos. It means profane or worldly. Esau was worldly. The King James translates it profane, and that comes from profanum, which was the fan or the gate just in front of the temple. In other words, this was a place that was close enough to walk through the door to see the priests coming and going and yet to remain on the outside. This is a picture of Esau. He was close enough to the people of God that he could understand the ways of the Lord, but he remained on the outside as far as his heart was concerned. He could be described in the way the prophet Ezekiel put it in Ezekiel 33, 31. My people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to listen to your words, but they do not put them into practice. With their mouths, they express devotion, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. And the point here is that when there is a family member whose heart is not fully turned to the Lord, it can add to family conflict. Notice Esau's disrespect for his parents back in Genesis 26. Look at verses 35, 34 and 35. And when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and Basemath, the daughter of Ellen the Hittite. And they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Surely Esau knew that this was not the will of God to marry these foreign wives. And he knew that this displeased his parents. But he did it anyway 
And he brought a lot of grief into his family. Look at Genesis 28, verses 6 through 9. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take for himself a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he charged him, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Paddan Aram. So Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father Isaac, and Esau went to Ishmael and married besides the wives that he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Neboeth. This disrespect for his parents was a reflection of his rebellion against God. But the point for this sermon is that his rebellion and fleshly orientation added to the conflict in the family. It always does. A selfish, self-willed, and self-centered family member will always complicate things and will always add conflict in the home. Sin has a way of making family relationships all the more difficult to deal with. So you say, what's the lesson here? Is this message just about the obvious that there is often conflict in families? Is it a sermon that leaves us with the empty feeling of thinking that there is no hope for the family that finds itself in the midst of fussing and fighting and feuding? Not at all. Not at all. You see, the lesson is in the fact that God changed the heart of a man and that changed the entire situation in regard to the family. When God brought about change in the heart of Jacob, by His grace and by His sovereign plan, not only was it possible to experience the restoration of his relationship with his brother, but the conflict was abated and God's will was accomplished. And what I'm saying in this message is that we could have a lot less conflict in our homes if we would learn to trust Him and to trust doing things His way. If we would yield our hearts to Him, if we would follow and apply His principles, we could have a lot less conflict. Now, since marriage is at the heart of most family conflicts, beginning next week, we're going to focus on the issue of conflict in marriage in particular. And we're going to start now narrowing down uh, to more specific issues as we see what God has to say about the various roles in the family. But I hope this morning, if you are experiencing conflict in your family, I hope and pray that you will seek God and call upon the Lord to help you to learn to trust Him fully and completely 
and to learn to apply and be committed to applying His truth to your life and to your family. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank You for this account in Scripture. We know it was given uh, for our instruction. And Lord, we thank You for it. We thank You for the good that You desire to come from it. And Lord, we know that You you want us to have good families and solid families and healthy families. And we we know You want our families to be a place where we can grow and especially grow to know You and love You and uh, to have fulfilled lives as Abraham had. And Lord, we pray that uh, that would be the case in our homes. And Lord, we pray that uh, You would give us the courage and the wisdom to know that Your way is always best And, Lord, help us to submit to you first and foremost, and then to love you and to love the other members of our family in a way, in a self-giving way that is pleasing in your sight. And, Lord, we pray that you help us to deal with conflict when it comes, that we would deal with it in a biblical manner, in a godly manner, in a way that pleases you. And, Lord, we pray this morning, if there are those here today that need to trust Christ for salvation, we pray they will come to know you today. Lord, we pray that all of us would uh, be quick to apply uh, your word to our lives, that we would be open and receptive, and uh, that we would uh, be about doing exactly that in our families. So, Lord, help us now as we respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.